Hello and welcome to our latest Herbert Smith Freehills Brexit podcast. I am Tom Henderson, a senior associate working in the firm's Brexit team. As a firm, we have long recognised the need to mix together political and policy insight with legal and business perspectives in the area of Brexit. So in this podcast, we are delighted to be joined by two external speakers, Amit Gill of Hanbury Strategy and Ali Renison of the Institute of Directors. Amit is a founding partner at Hanbury, which is a political advisory firm, and prior to joining Hanbury Strategy, he was advisor to David Cameron for over 10 years, working on two general elections and three referendums, and spent six years in Downing Street. As number 10 director of strategy, he was deeply involved in the pre-referendum EU negotiations. He founded Hanbury Strategy with Paul Stevenson, who, having been special advisor to the current Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, amongst other things, helped set up Vote Leave, becoming its Director of Communications. So it's fair to say that Hanbury Strategy is very plugged into all strands of thought on Brexit. Amit is going to discuss where we are in the negotiations and what is likely to happen next. Ali Renison is the Head of Europe and Trade Policy at the Institute of Directors. She devises recommendations on EU reform matters and acts as the link between business and government on increasing international trade, having previously advised a number of parliamentarians in both houses on EU legislative issues. Ali is going to address some of the business opportunities arising from Brexit, as well as the future of trade on non-EU countries. On the topic of trade policy further, I should add that, unlike most of our peers, Herbert Smith Freehills has maintained a substantial WTO and international trade practice across London and Brussels for the last 20 years. And of course, that team now plays a key role in the Brexit work we have been doing across all sectors and specialisms. Indeed, the team was further bolstered by Eric White joining our Brussels office shortly after the referendum, having been head of the EU Commission Legal Services Trade Policy and WTO team, where he worked for 35 years. Eric writes our extremely popular View from Brussels series on Brexit, which is available on our Brexit Notes blog. We also intend to release a future podcast from our WTO and international trade team on Brexit issues, but for now we're pleased to welcome Ali to give us her take on trade. Now, before coming to a meet, briefly to set the scene, the aim of the Brexit negotiations at this stage is to agree two documents. The first is the terms of a withdrawal agreement, and the second, the terms of a political declaration on the future relationship with the EU. Without agreement on both issues, the possibility of a no-deal Brexit in which the UK leaves the EU abruptly at the end of March 2019, with no transition period, remains a real risk. We had hoped, as most probably did, that matters would have progressed more substantially than they have by this point in the Brexit negotiation timetable. For many months, October had been seen as the key date for agreement. However, another EU summit has come and gone with little progress, and the summit which had been penciled in for November has been shelved. This lack of progress is obviously unsettling to business. So with that background, Amit, um, what do you think are the chances of there being a deal between the UK and EU? Well, in some respect, the Prime Minister has little choice. Um, she needs to get a deal and desperately needs to get a deal because the alternative is no deal. And that is not something that she really is willing to countenance and her cabinet's not willing to countenance and the official Dem in Whitehall are willing to countenance. So the issue for her as she looks towards um, getting a deal now with the EU is twofold. It's the outstanding issues in the withdrawal agreement and in particular the Irish backstop. And then there is this declaration 
on the future relationship. So let me just briefly take each of those things in turn. When it comes to the backstop, you would have seen a few stories in the past few days about how the EU may have moved, that they are willing to offer the UK a UK-wide customs union as part of the backstop. The reality is, do not read too much into this, the offer on the table by the EU is the same. There is still going to be a backstop to the backstop. They still want a Northern Ireland-only provision there, and that is something that the PM herself had said she can't sign up to, let alone her DUP colleagues in Parliament. Will the EU blink from this? Will they kind of give up on this Northern Ireland um, provision? I think that's very unlikely. They haven't blinked yet in the negotiations. I don't know why they'd start blinking now. So the question is, what will the UK government do? Look, there are two options, really, that they have, and they are considering an official level. One is just to continue pushing for this UK-wide customs union backstop, or the other one is having, and making that permanent, and the other one is having uh, a never-ending kind of implementation period slash transition, whatever you want to call it. Um, Huge question marks over whether the EU will grant either of those two things, the reason I just gave, they're very unlikely to blink. And even if the Prime Minister was to get them, you know, should face a hell of a battle, try, um, battle trying to get this through either the Cabinet and Parliament. Is there anything else then that the UK could do? Well, I think there's one thing that we could see rear its head in the forthcoming weeks, and so don't rule this out, and that's the UK offering more money. It's going to be 39 billion thus far under withdrawal of agreement terms, offering more money to get a more suitable backstop, a backstop with a unilateral break clause or a backstop with a time limit to it. The only other alternative to that is just a fudge. What the UK has always looked for in these negotiations is some fudge language um, and around the legal text on this. Um, Will uh, the Prime Minister succeed in finding a landing zone with the EU on this Irish issue? Well, as I said at the very start of my remarks, she has no choice. She needs to find a landing zone and she probably will be able to cobble something together. Um, when it comes to the future relationship uh, declaration, um, the PM has made it clear that she wants what was in checkers, which was effectively a single market membership for the UK in goods. Will the EU accept this? Um, no, put simply. It's the one big giant cherry pick. And President Macron in particular is opposed to giving this to the UK. President Macron has his own ambitions for reform in Europe. He talks about his concentric circles. He has not outlined what those concentric circles are yet. He doesn't want to be pushed into making those decisions by the UK through Brexit. So he checkers is a possibility in terms of the future relationship, maybe years down the line, but it's not a possibility now. Um, so I think instead what we will get is something which is much more vague, what is being dubbed in the press a blind Brexit. Uh, the Prime Minister is loath to do that. She doesn't believe she can hand over £39 billion plus pounds to the EU without having some firm um, commitments on what the future relationship looks like. But I think in some respects, she's got to be careful for what she wishes for. As she looks for votes in the House of Commons, um, something that is vague, um, something that is all things to all people might help her get this one deal over the line. Thanks, Amit. Um, so that's the prospect of a deal with the EU. What about the prospect of getting that deal through the UK Parliament? The million dollar question, really. Um, it depends on the deal. Uh, obviously, and let's go on the assumption it's the kind of like the one I just outlined with a particularly onerous Irish backstop arrangement and a blindish sort of Brexit in the future relationship declaration. Look, there are many parts to the parliamentary puzzle. 
um, and uh, which number 10 and in particular the whips office will be contending with. The first part is obviously the ERG slash hard Brexiteers and the Tory party. They have 50 MPs publicly signed up to voting down the deal or voting down checkers, as they say. Um, whether those 50 is rock solid, who knows? Uh, number 10 will hope not. And number 10 will probably think they can, you know, in the crunch vote of high drama in Parliament, try and squeeze that down to about 20 rebels. Remains to be seen. Secondly, you have the DUP. Again, I don't think anyone should be making any firm and confident predictions about how the DUP will vote on the deal just yet. Uh, but they are really in the balance on this one. And that's another 10 MPs that potentially the Prime Minister will lose. Uh, then you have the Tory Remainers. Um, look, you would expect most of them would uh, vote for whatever the Prime Minister comes back with for fear of the consequences of not, i.e. a potential no deal. But there are some very firm Tory Remain MPs who very firmly want a people's vote. Voting for the Prime Minister's deal will deny the country that second referendum that they want. So they may vote against this deal as well. On the flip side, though, you have the Labour Party. Now, no one expects the Labour front bench to support the Prime Minister in this deal. And no one really expects hardline Labour Remainers to support this deal. But you do have a flanks of MPs, be they Labour Brexit supporting MPs or Labour MPs who represent Brexit slash leave seats who may come to the Prime Minister's rescue. How many? Uh, it's hard to say, but potentially 30, maybe even 40. So if you tot all those numbers up, the numbers who are going to vote against the deal, but the numbers who could potentially come to the Prime Minister's side from the Labour benches, it really is, uh, without wanting to give an inadequate answer, it really is on a knife edge. I mean, the thing the Prime Minister has in her favour is that, you know, she will have a deal at that stage and, you know, all her opponents will have nothing from the EU. At least she will have a deal. Um, You know, she is timing out Parliament. The longer she leaves the vote, you know, it's looking now to be in January, uh, the the harder it is for people with alternative agendas to manage to push through those agendas. And then that comes to another point, is that the threat of the uh, voting this down raises a whole list of alternatives you know, whether that could be a second referendum, it could be a general election, it could be a no deal, that all her opponents in Parliament might just fold in behind and say, look, better the devil you know, which is this Prime Minister's deal, than the devil you don't, which could be the end of Brexit or a no deal or a second referendum. Thanks. Um, so you mentioned towards the end of your answer some of the alternatives to a Brexit deal. Can you explain in a bit more detail um, what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, look, if the... If the Prime Minister puts her deal to the House and um, it doesn't pass, I, I think one thing you cannot rule out is the government putting the uh, deal back to the House, i.e. Um, resubmitting the motion. Uh, they are well within their rights to do that. And you could see a scenario where the deal falls in the House. You have a couple of weeks of constitutional, political, potentially economic uh, volatility and chaos. And then she just goes, the Prime Minister, that is, just goes, look, I'm going to put it back to the House. Let's end the madness vote for this deal. But as I said earlier, if the deal does fall, all the old other alternatives, the prospect of them rises. There is absolutely the prospect of a no deal at that scenario. You know, we're going to be two months out uh, from the Brexit day. Um, but having said that, you would think, though it's unclear exactly how for now, um, Parliament would try to assert itself because there is not a parliamentary majority for no deal. Um, the prospect of a so-called people's vote or second referendum will definitely rise if the vote um, falls. 
Um, I think a lot of that, if not actually completely, this depends on Jeremy Corbyn and the leadership of the Labour Party embracing that, because I don't think you'll get a Tory Prime Minister putting that forward. It would require Labour to embrace that and bring over some Tory rebels. I think you would definitely get the prospect of a general election rising. Um, but again, um, that will require Tory MPs voting down their own government, which is a pretty big step. I think one thing uh, that does raise um, it rises a prospect in that scenario is a Norway option or the EEA option for the UK. You could see the deal falling and in that moment of crisis, a cross-party coalition of MPs from the Tory side, from the Labour side, coming together and saying, look, for the good of the country, we now need to just pursue the Norway for now option. Let's park ourselves in the EEA um, while the UK kind of sorts out what it wants in that future trading relationship. Uh, but whatever happens in the immediate fallout of a deal, of the deal being voted down in Parliament will be incredibly dramatic. And you will see a number of people trying to pursue a number of different agendas. Thanks, Amit. Um, now, Ali, we often talk about the risks to business as a result of Brexit. Can you say something about the opportunities for business? Sure. So I think, interestingly, the the question about opportunities, which you obviously don't hear very much about, um, is probably a reflection of the fact that uh, we're dealing with risk now and, and think about the opportunities later. Um, part of, I think, the answer lies in uh, trade-offs and caveats. So I can actually list quite a few of them. The question is, is do they offset the loss of market access or the disruption, etc.? But it's worth going through some of them from a business perspective. Um, and different businesses will have different views on this. Uh, one of the interesting things that I always hear from some businesses is the state aid issue, um, which is ironic in the sense that the UK has driven a lot of European state aid law, state aid being the restrictions that are put in place on the degree to which um, selective advantages can be extended through whether it's tax breaks um, or sort of, uh, sort of funding for regional airports by governments to certain parts of industry. And that's a big part of the single market in terms of making sure there's a level playing field that no one has an advantage that other parts of the single market don't. Now, the EU has been very clear that they want this to be a big part of the withdrawal um, and the future relationship. The UK government has said that it will continue to align with state aid. But it is one of the areas where, particularly in the way that the EU has started treating state aid uh, in terms of um, how it assesses uh, um, tax incentives, for example, recently, um, whether it's sort of the um, uh, EIS, SAIS, Enterprise and Investment Scheme uh, for sort of uh, helping startups to scale up. Um, there are a lot of companies who would like to be released um, from those EU restrictions so that it could be rolled out across the whole of the UK. And there are some industries who would like to see um, the, the ability. Uh, I think it was interesting. There was a comment shortly after the referendum um, by the head of Invest Northern Ireland that he was hoping to be re- released of EU state aid restrictions because it does put a damper to a certain extent on the kind of funding that that regional governments um, uh, can, can put into industry. Um, the other ones are, although I would caveat that by saying that it's such an important part of um, what the EU is willing to give in return for market access, that I think it's probably unlikely that, that the UK is going to move completely away from that. It will, it will be different in the sense that we will no longer have to go and ask the Commission for permission for those state aid um, uh, requests in the future, regardless of how we leave the EU. Some of the other ones, if you look at um, where are potentially the benefits in regulatory divergence, um, financial services is, I think, one of the interesting ones that in terms of the sectors that were probably most uncomfortable um, or had the more businesses who were uncomfortable with uh, the Norway-style model, um, very often you would hear from... Um, regulators, the PRA, the FCA, and some of the bigger businesses that they didn't want to necessarily be in a situation where representatives from 
20% of the market in continental Europe were setting the rules for 80%. So it may be an opportunity to change some of the rules around um, uh, the bonus cap, uh, for example. Um, uh, other ones being in terms of um, uh, agri-food, uh, the EU tends to take an approach towards regulating pesticides that is not always welcomed in this country by farmers, by different parts of the agri-food industry. So there is the potential to have a different approach, what some might call a slightly more science-based, uh, innovation-friendly approach to um, regulation of some of those areas um, in the agri-food industry and the environment. I would caution, um, add a note of caution to that to a certain extent, though, because um, checkers uh, is the idea that you would continue to align with the EU rulebook on goods. And we're not sure at this stage how far the scope of that rulebook would actually extend to in terms of what we continue to follow on EU rules with. Um, but so those are some of the areas that I think that you get here from businesses who are interested in divergence, um, where they would pick out some of the opportunities. The other thing I would say on that briefly is that I, I think there's the potential for Brexit to to act in the way that people thought GDPR might help companies sort of um, get better control of their data, um, uh, sort of data management systems. And I think potentially, potentially, you could have a situation where we're really trying to get businesses to look at their trade management systems, particularly in the space of goods, um, what they can do to, um, you know, in, in, take advantage of existing trade facilitations, whether it's um, customs warehousing, uh, authorized economic operator, basically trusted trader schemes, things that they probably should have been doing anyways if they're engaged in international supply chains. And I think potentially Brexit is an opportunity to force companies to actually um, get a better grip on some of those trade management systems, if for any other reason, by necessity, because of what Brexit is going to require in the future. Um, so that's a positive way of looking at the potential for some of the customs disruption going forward. Thanks, Ali. Now, given your current role, um, could you explain a bit about how might trade with non-EU countries change after Brexit? Sure. I think there's there's two dimensions here to look at. One is, um, uh, I suppose you could say, a more positive approach, um, which is looking at the long term, um, what kind of formal trading relationships in particular might we forge um, that could go more quickly than the EU in terms of preferential trade arrangements. Um, we might be more willing to the, than the EU to um, uh, grant preferences to developing countries um, in certain areas. Uh, when you look at sort of the different sort of schemes for developing countries to access the EU market, um, whenever they sort of slightly grow in terms of GDP uh, scale, very often then get into a range where um, even if the country hasn't become significantly richer, um, you know, they don't get they get completely different and worsened access off the basis of certain World Bank criteria. And so the, e the UK might want to take a slightly more um, uh, encouraging approach to um, keep some of those companies, those countries in the generalized scheme of preferences for longer, for example. So that's very much linking um, what our trade policy is to the developing world in the future. Um, we might also wish to um, do trade agreements with countries that the EU has sort of resiled from. Um, there was a trade negotiation with the US, but it sort of stalled. We might be able to go more quickly than, than the um, EU and talk about areas that the US under the previous administration was less willing to discuss, such as cooperation, regulatory cooperation, financial services. You might even, um, given the priority that's been accorded to the Gulf countries by its Secretary of State for International Trade, Liam Fox, you might even think about doing a trade agreement um, with the Gulf uh, Cooperation Council countries, so that's sort of the, uh, the Emirates, um, uh, Oman, uh, Kuwait, etc. Um, I do think, however, though, that um, a note of caution being that uh, the Labour Party will have uh, strong views on the human rights elements of some of these trade agreements. And so I think that trade policy, if and when we are out of any customs union with the EU, um, is going to become a big um, uh, political football in the future. 
Um, turning to a slightly more, I think, uh, imminent set of priorities to deal with on non-EU uh, countries, um, the government's obviously trying to roll over a lot of existing preferential trade arrangements with uh, countries with whom the EU has a trade deal um, to sort of make them UK uh, standalone trade deals. So whether it's with Turkey, because the EU has a customs union with Turkey, uh, South Korea, um, a trade agreement that saw UK automotive exports rise significantly. And the difficulty there is that uh, you can't just do a cut and paste job. Um, there are two sort of areas where that are proving to be slightly problematic in the sense that some of these countries do see this as a sort of opportunity to renegotiate terms, whereas the UK just wants to roll them over uh, once we're into the transition. And those areas are uh, tariff rate quotas um, for the agricultural industry, meat, dairy, etc., um, and then rules of origin. So at the moment, if you are exporting a car to the EU from the UK using the South Korea trade agreement that sort of reduces uh, tariffs that you face when you're sending um, products into the South Korean market, um, you have to, you're doing so on the basis of showing that you have a certain amount of UK and EU content going into that to qualify for the tariff preference. Uh, the difference being is that when you try and roll that agreement over to make it a UK-wide, uh, those are EU what we call EU rules of origin in that trade agreement that will no longer apply. So you effectively may have to get a bigger share of um, uh, UK content into the cars that are using that deal. So it's it gets really tricky very quickly. And I think the big question is, is that are there going to be some trade agreements that will end up having to be forfeited because we're simply not able to roll them over on time? Um, and the more complicated uh, trade agreements tend to be the countries with whom the EU has a very deep relationship. So Turkey, Switzerland, Norway, etc., where really it's going to be quite difficult to do that without this sort of trilateral involvement to a certain degree, potentially, of the EU. Thank you for joining us for Meet and Ali, and thanks for listening. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.